Well, good morning. I think we needed to work some things out this morning. That's good. That's what our time of worship with the Lord is all about. Well, happy anniversary. Um, yes, 12 years ago, the first Sunday of April, we started the Oasis Church. And we just sung about God being our way maker. That was certainly the case in the start of this church. I'm not going to take the time to go through all of it, but I'll just tell you a brief couple of details about how our church got started to give God the glory. Uh, even 12 years ago, obviously, we had to start in a school like a lot of churches do. Uh, we didn't have our own facility from the get-go. And um, even 12 years ago, most of the schools in the Southeast Valley were already occupied by other churches or something going on. But two weeks, two weeks before our church started, the church that was meeting at Basha High School, just down the road there, moved out. So we heard about that, and our core team, we went and we talked to the principal, obviously, and vice principal, and the people at Basha High School, and said, you know, here's what we'd like to do. We'd like to, you know, come in and, and use your facilities and whatever. And they had just the right people there at the right time. Uh, they had some Christians in leadership and whatnot that were very uh, sensitive, if you will, and open to our ministry. And uh, they gave us, you know, this wonderful auditorium and all the all the uh, sound equipment and everything. We didn't even have to have our own stuff at the very beginning of our, of our uh, start. Now, we obviously added as, as it went on. But the fact, first of all, that we were able to get into Basha when we wanted to, and then when we were talking to them that day, I think it was like a Tuesday or a Wednesday. Of course, we're like, can we meet this Sunday? You know, just like three or four days away. I mean, it, it was that quick. And uh, they said, well, they said, we, that, we have no problem with that, except in order for you to move in, you would need a million-dollar insurance rider, you know, through an insurance company. And we have found that there's just no way you're going to get a million-dollar insurance rider. Probably it's going to take you a couple weeks to be able to secure that, right? 24 hours, God gave us a million-dollar insurance rider. Yeah. And we were starting then the first Sunday of April. So God is the way maker. Even when there seems to be no way, God makes a way. Joshua 21, beginning at verse 43 this morning. Joshua 21, beginning at verse 43. We're continuing our series in the book of Joshua. And if you know me, you know that I don't do special messages for things like anniversaries of our church and Easter Sunday and Christmas and all that kind of stuff, because I just feel like whatever God's laid on my heart, it will be the message that God wants to bring to his people that day. Well, there could be no more timely or relevant message to us as a church 12 years into the history of our church than what we're going to talk about this morning. Because in this passage of scripture, Joshua is going to reveal to us two things that really are the two greatest challenges that the church today faces thousands of years after all this happened. And those two challenges are this, maintaining the priority and passion of our worship in a world of distraction and maintaining unity 
and peace within God's people in a world of division and divisiveness. And that's exactly what we're going to be talking about. In fact, as I've shared with many of you in the last couple of years, I've been a pastor now for 38 years, and the last couple years have been the most challenging for those reasons. The distractions that God's people are having to navigate and trying to stay focused on God and having their passion and, and primacy of worship still there. And then in this world of divisiveness and division, churches are splitting, churches are dividing. I just heard again this past week of a church here in the valley that has split and divided and is disintegrating and all of that. Churches all over this country, folks, are, are disintegrating and dividing and whatever because of things like politics and how the pandemic is handled and all this. Satan is using all of those occasions to try to drive wedges into the church and into the people of God. Well, that's exactly what this passage is all about this morning. So if you'll turn it with me to Joshua chapter 21, beginning at verse 43, this is again after the tribes have conquered parts of all of the promised land that God has given them. Not all of it, but parts of all of it. And they are beginning to settle in to all that God has given for them. And we've learned from the time we began this study in Joshua that God has a plan and purpose for each of us as individual believers in Jesus Christ. But God also has a corporate plan for us as the people of God. God not only wants to move us individually further along with him, God wants to move groups of people further along with him. And that's why it's important that we become part of a local church because that's part of the way that God works out his way and his will in all of our lives is not only by us having a personal dynamic relationship with God, but also having a relationship with other believers in a close setting like a local church where we can move with God together. And that's exactly what God was doing with the people in Joshua's day. He wasn't just moving Joshua to the promised land. He was moving all of them to the promised land. They were all experiencing a greater understanding of God by doing this together. So with that said, they're at that point, and Joshua brings them together, and notice in verse 43 of chapter 21 of Joshua, where Joshua begins to acknowledge the faithfulness of God. And we've certainly sung a lot about that this morning. He said, so the Lord gave Israel all the land he had solemnly promised to their ancestors. Notice, first of all, he gave it. That the promised land was a gift from God to his people, a gift of his grace, an expression of his generosity and graciousness. The fact that God solemnly promised this reminds us that God binded himself, if you will, or obligated himself to fulfill these promises, which is incredible. And then it says, they, verse 43, conquered it and lived in it only because they partnered with God. 
They only took possession of it and were able to conquer it as we've seen throughout our study, whether it was crossing the Jordan River, whether it was the walls of Jericho coming down, whether it was AI, all of those things, they were in partnership with God. One of the great lessons we've learned through our study of Joshua is when the people of God were in partnership with God, they achieved victory. They, they made progress. When they were unwilling to partner with God or chose not to partner with God and to do things on their own, they met with defeat and they failed every time. So the, one of the great lessons is you and I have to learn both individually and corporately to partner with God. And when we do that, we will learn to live in the victory that God can provide for his people. Then notice this, verse 44, the Lord made them secure. Do you know that only God can make you secure? We're living in a world today that is so, you know, groping and wanting to feel secure. The only way you'll feel secure in your life is when you turn your life over to God and you trust him and you trust his promises and you know that he's got you and that his everlasting arms are always underneath you. That's how you and I know we're secure. We're not going to feel secure in maybe all of the circumstances of life and the situations that life brings, but we can always feel secure in our God. And it is only God that can make us feel secure. So we have to be open to God making us feel secure and stable and settle. The Lord made them secure in fulfillment of all he had solemnly promised their ancestors. None of their enemies could resist them or stand before them. Not one of the Lord's faithful promises to the family of Israel was left unfulfilled. Every last one was realized. They're basically being reminded that they stand as God's people at this moment in time only because of the mercy grace and faithfulness of God. Now let's think about that even this morning. As we stand here today, sit here today, as the Oasis Church, as God's people, we must also remind ourselves and pause to thank our God and to worship our God because we are where we are 12 years in as a church only because of the mercy, grace, and faithfulness of God. God gets all the glory for everything good that's happened in this church or through this church in the last 12 years. And that's what we all need to be reminded of. That's part of why we see that this passage we're looking at today, a lot of it is about worship and remembering to be thankful and appreciative and grateful for all that God has done for us, in a sense, counting our blessings. That's where the people of God were. And you and I always need to be mindful of that, both individually and corporately. Wherever we are in our life, whatever season of life we are in, wherever we are standing at the moment, we are only there because of the mercy, grace, and faithfulness of our God. Then we come to chapter 22. There's something else we learn here, and that is in these first few verses, we also learn this truth, that we as the people of God are responsible to help and support and encourage and strengthen one another in our journey together. 
See, that's why God calls us together. That's why God says, I have an individual will and purpose for your life, but I also have an a, a will and purpose and plan for your life that is also being part of something bigger than yourself, being part of a body, a group of people, like-minded, who I can move together in, in a direction where you're growing together. And so what Joshua is doing here is he's commending these two and a half tribes that basically were willing to put their lives on hold for a while and go and help the other nine and a half tribes to secure the land that they would live in. And then he's going to dismiss them back. Notice these first few verses. Joshua summoned the Reubenites, Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, chapter 22, verse 1, and told them, you've carried out all the instructions of Moses, the Lord's servant, and you've obeyed all that I've told you. You've not abandoned or forsaken your fellow Israelites this entire time, right up to this very day. You have completed or finished the task given to you by the Lord your God. Now the Lord your God has made your fellow Israelites secure. He's given them a resting place just as he promised them. So now you may turn around, go to your homes in your own land, which Moses, the Lord's servant, assigned to you east of the Jordan. Get the picture here. These two and a half tribes of people were willing to sacrifice and put their lives on hold to do what? to help their fellow Israelites secure their own place in the land. It is this beautiful picture of the way God has always designed his people to work together, whether it's Old Testament or whether it's now the church in the New Testament age. We are responsible for one another. We are here to help, encourage, strengthen, refresh, teach one another, uh, admonish one another. I mean, all the one another's of the New Testament. How can we carry those out as God's people if we're not doing life in ministry together? How can we love one another and pray for one another and serve one another and worship together as one and do all these things that we are to do if we're not part of a body, if we're not truly part of a community of believers? How can you pray for people that you don't know and you don't know what their needs are? How can they pray for you if they don't know what's going on in your life? There has to be some type of relationships going on there for us even to do that. How can we serve one another if we're not together, if we're at a distance? You can't do that. How can you do that if you're in isolation from other Christians? You can't do that. Which is why we weren't shut down too long. Because I knew God was very clear, you need to open up this church to allow my people to do what I've called them to do, and they need to trust me that I'll take care of them. Amen. And God has done that here for us. He's done that here for us. Because we put our faith in him. And so you see what's happening here. We need to recommit ourselves that we're in this together and that hopefully you know you're a Paul Barnabas or Timothy to another Christian just as you have a Paul Barnabas and Timothy in your life and if you've not heard that description every Christian should have some type of relationship in their life that fits those you have a spiritual mentor a Paul in your life that's pouring into you and 
teaching you, but you also have a Barnabas, somebody that's sort of your, your equal spiritually that you walk through life with. And then you have a Timothy, somebody that you're pouring into. And, and it can be one, it can be a couple people that fill those roles and it doesn't have to be, you know, the same person for a long period. It can be a seasonal thing or it can be a long-term thing. That's not the issue. The issue is that God wants us to do this thing together. Are we doing it together as God designed it? Are we opening up our lives for others to pour into us, and are we pouring into others? That's what you see happening here with the people of God. That's why they accomplished things, because they not only partnered with God, but they served one another, and they encouraged and supported and helped one another in their journey through the promised land. Then you come to verse 5. And after we learn that we need to pause and thank God for where we are and where we stand, knowing that it's only by his mercy, grace, and faithfulness that we're here, and when we are recommitted to being part of a body and where we're here for one another and we're here to mutually support and encourage one another, then we get into this whole, again, priority, primacy, and passion for worship in a world of distraction. What does Joshua say to these two and a half tribes before he lets them cross the river and go to the other side? He gives them great reminders here, all dealing with worship. Notice what he says in verse 5. First of all, carefully obey the commands and instructions Moses, the Lord's servant, gave you. Love the Lord your God. Follow all his instructions. Obey his commands. Be loyal to him and serve him with all your heart and being. Four words, obey, love, be loyal, serve. Those are words that really form the essence of worship. What worship is all about to God. And notice that in all of those, it involves three things, our head, our heart, and our hands all have to be engaged in true worship of the Lord. That's why the greatest commandment is I've got to love the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. I've got to be all in with God. The worship of God has to be the priority of my life. God has to be first place. That's what Paul said to the Colossians. That's even what Jesus said to the church at Ephesus in the book of Revelation. You've left your first love, and I am to be your first love. Worship is putting God in his proper place, and his proper place in our life as a church and his proper place in our lives individually is number one. Number one to have my head engaged with God, my mind, to have my heart engaged with God, and then to have my hands moved to serve him and to serve others as he works on my head and my heart. That's why, again, we've said in recent weeks, the two pillars of our church at the Oasis, the worship of God and the word of God, and they will complement each other and they will work together so that God can affect our head and heart through worship and our head and heart through the word of God so that then we go out and we serve him through even serving others. 
head, heart, and hands all have to be engaged in the worship of God. And I cannot choose to worship God as I see fit or as I want to, any more than any church can just sort of make it up as they go along and say, well, we'll worship God this way. That, that doesn't work. That's why it has so grieved me in the last couple of years to see even many churches designing now their worship in reaction or response to what's going on in the world. We don't get our cue from the world of how we do worship and how we do church. We get our cues from God and God alone. In fact, keep your finger in Joshua chapter 22 and go over with me to the Gospel of John for just a moment, to John chapter 4 and that great meeting that Jesus had with the woman at the well in Samaria. And he talks to her about worship. And I'm just going to begin in verse 19, sort of the good break there where the story is picked up, where they're talking to each other. And the woman says to him, Sir, I see that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, and you people say that the place where people must worship is in Jerusalem. And Jesus said to her, Believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. And then notice what Jesus says. You people worship what you do not know. Now notice something there. Jesus saying, you're worshipers, but you don't even know what you're worshiping. Jesus could say the same thing to a lot of folks today. We worship what we know, because salvation is from the Jews, but a time is coming and now is here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeks such people to be his worshipers. So notice Jesus pointing out, not everybody who worships is a true worshiper. Because in order to be a true worshiper, we've got to worship God as he's revealed he wants to be worshipped. You and I individually or as churches can't just go, I'm going to choose to worship God the way I want to, or the way I think I should. No, I have to worship him the way he is revealed he wants to be worshipped. That's the only acceptable true worship. And you and I as a church, especially on this 12th anniversary, we need to make sure that we recommit ourselves, that in the years ahead, we will continue to strive to, to follow whatever the Lord has revealed about how he wants to be worshipped. Not how we want to worship him, but how he wants to be worshipped, how he has designed worship to be. Because notice what Jesus says in verse 24 to her. God is spirit, and the people who worship him must, must worship him in spirit and in truth. It's necessity that we worship him a certain way, you see. So I can't just say, well, I'm going to, you know, have it my way and do worship the way I want to. No, no, no. That's not true worship. True worship has been revealed to us by God through his spirit and through the word. And if we're not worshiping him that way, and really worshiping then means he's the focus. God has to be the focus, front and center of our worship. And so many times today, man becomes more the central figure in our lives and in our churches and in our worship than God does. And somehow God gets lost in our worship. God must never get lost in our worship because if he does, that's not true worship. God should be getting greater and bigger 
should be coming more magnified in our eyes and in our ears as we worship him. If somehow God is diminished in any way, that's not true worship. And so back to the book of Joshua. We then come to this passage that takes up the rest of the chapter, beginning in chapter 22, verse 10. And for the sake of time, I'm not going to take the time to go down through all of this, but I'm going to try to sort of summarize it, if you will, in story form. And what is happening here now goes back to the worship of God and the passion for God and for right worship of him, but also we're going to see that the unity of God's people here is very much threatened in what happens next. So what happens is the two and a half tribes are dismissed. They go to the other side of the river. And while they're there for a time, they get this idea. They say, we know that the altar, basically the place of worship, is on the other side of the river where we are to go periodically and join our brothers and sisters over there and worship the Lord. But they said in subsequent generations, and even maybe when, when we build relationships with other people who become God followers through our lives, when they begin to ask us, well, what kind of ties or bond or relationship do you have with those people? And there's really no, nothing tangible to tie us to them. They said, we have this idea. We're going to erect an altar over here, a very notable and conspicuous altar. But this altar is not going to be used for sacrifices because we understand that true worship can only have one place where God, there are no rivals of God and, and there's no compromise in the way we worship him. So this altar we're building over here, it's not going to be for sacrifices. It's just going to be symbolic. But we want to build a very special altar over here so that when people come, they understand that it, this altar ties us together with the people on the other side of the river and somehow, you know, we're united and, and they can see that even though we're separated physically, that we're all together in this, okay? You following me so far? Or have I confused the heck out of you? Okay. So this is what they do. They build this great altar. Well, the people on the other side, all of a sudden, they hear what they've done or even maybe see because it's so conspicuous and notable that they can actually see it, that they get angry because they jump to the conclusion that these people over here have now built a, a, a rival altar, if you will, to the true worship of God. And let me say this. Though they are wrong in jumping to conclusions... And let's stop there for a minute. You and I as Christians need to be careful that we know all the facts of something before we, because that's how Satan can divide God's people. They made the mistake of jumping to conclusions and putting things into their head that wasn't true. But I do want to commend them for this. They had such, at this time in their history, such a passion for the worship of God and to make sure that the worship of God stayed true and that there could be no compromise to the worship of God because their God has no rivals, that they were willing to fight for true worship. Oh, 
that God's people would have that kind of commitment to the worship of God today, that we're not going to let anything stand in the way of the true worship of our God, like Jesus said, that we must worship him in spirit and in truth, and we cannot compromise our worship in any way, and, and we must make sure that God has no rivals to our worship. Oh, that we would have that today, right? So what they do is this. They decide before they attack their fellow brothers and sisters in Christ that they will send a delegation across the river and that they will basically confront them about this altar that they've built. So they make this little team up and they send them across. And I'll say one thing for these people. They let them have their say, even though they're saying some really hard things and, and really, at the, in the end, wrong things. They let them speak. They let them say everything and get it off their chest, which can I say again, the way this is handled by these two groups of Israelites are really noteworthy and worthy of imitation by us. Because these people come over here and say, why are you being disloyal to our God? Why are you committing this act of basically idolatry and treason by building this altar? I mean, they're letting them have it, right? They think that they've done something very, very wrong, and they just sit there and listen to them. But to commend them, after they're done saying their piece, they allow this group to defend themselves and basically give an answer. And their answer is, oh, my goodness, first of all, God knows our heart. I mean, they're saying a couple times there, El, El Shaddai, Jehovah. God knows. God knows our heart. We had no intentions when we built this to somehow make you think that, that we were trying to, you know, circumvent or whatever, undermine the true worship of God over here at the one altar that's over on your side. In no way were we, this altar is not in any way going to ever see a sacrifice. This altar was simply symbolic. It was just a reminder to us over here and to anyone who was associated with us that we were tied with you that we had a unity and a bond with you because it's so important not only for God's people to get worship right, but it's also important for God's people to know that we are called by God to maintain unity and peace within ourselves. That's one of the ways God gets glory, by, by having a group of people that are willing to lay aside the things that could divide us, the things that are different about us, and to come together and lay all those aside because they're all secondary compared to the worship of our God and the greatness of our God. And therefore, if God is truly being the one focused on, we won't have our own agendas when we become part of the body. We won't bring our own self in and make self the number one thing. No, God and the worship of God becomes the number one thing, which means we lay aside self. Isn't that why Jesus taught us as disciples? If you're going to be my disciple, you got to what? you got to take up your cross daily and die to self, die to self. Too much self in a community of believers is going to bring division and divisiveness. So they let them talk. And here's the great thing. After they let the two and a half tribes on this side explain to them what they did and why they did it, 
they believed it. They didn't question it. They accepted it. They believed the best in their brothers and sisters. And because of that, civil war was avoided and a crisis was averted. And the people of God came together. In fact, at the end of the chapter, they basically named this altar a witness of our unity. Wow. Why? Because the people of God understand we need to worship God and we need to make sure that we are obeying and loving and being loyal and serving our God and that the worship of God comes before everything else because he comes before everything else. But as we come together as God's people, we've also got to be willing to lay self and selfish agendas aside in order to worship God in unity and in peace as God is pleased to have us worship him. God doesn't want to see his children all fighting with each other all the time. Any more than we as parents would love to see our children, you know, exist in peace instead of fighting with each other. That doesn't bring any, you know, warm fuzzies to our hearts as parents, right? And it doesn't bring any warm fuzzies to God's either when he looks down from heaven and sees his children bickering and fighting and, you know, clawing and scratching with each other. He wants to see us live together. In fact, before we close this morning, turn over with me to the book of Romans, chapter 15. The book of Romans, chapter 15. And I'm going to pick it up in verse 4. Paul's writing to the Roman Christians here, and he says, for everything that was written in former times, which, by the way, that's Old Testament, and you know why we should study the Old Testament just like we should study the New Testament? Because the Old Testament was also written for our instruction, verse 4, so that through endurance and through encouragement of the Scriptures, we may have hope. Now may the God of endurance and comfort give you unity with one another in accordance with Christ Jesus. Literally, one mind. So that together you may with one voice Glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Literally, so that you may learn to harmonize with one another rather than be the dissonant note. We have to learn to harmonize with one another so that when we come together as God's people and we worship him, we do it with one mind, one heart, and one voice. That's how God wants to be worshipped. So here, thousands of years before you and I ever came into being, the people of God are at that same place in their own history. They're at a defining moment. They're a few years into the promised land. And God says, it's time to pause and remember that you stand where you stand because of my mercy, grace, and faithfulness. Keep supporting and helping one another in your journey together. Make the worship of God the priority and passion of your life. And as you do that, do everything within your power to be the one to be the peacemaker and peacemakers in the body of Christ. Maintain that unity and peace so that God can be even glorified through that. 
so that we can be a unified group of people. I mean, what better message could we have as a church 12 years in? Because again, the two greatest challenges to me facing the church today is maintaining the priority and passion for the worship of God in a world of distractions and maintaining the unity and peace of God's people in a world of division. Those are the two greatest challenges facing the church today. And I'm hoping today on our 12th anniversary that those of us who are here today and those of you who are watching through live stream this morning, that you will say, I'm committing myself to that. I want to be part of that. I want to be part of a church like that. I want to do my part. I'm going to ask our worship team to come. And as they're coming and getting in place, I'm, I'm just going to pray in just a moment and just say, I, I just want to ask God for all of us to just be in this moment and say, God, because we're singing about the heart of worship. God, it's about you. It's not about me. It's not about us. It's about you. And I hope that this morning in both of our services here at the 9 and the 11 o'clock service, that we'll also be conscious that as we are singing this and singing it out with all our heart and all our being, that we're singing as one. That we have allowed God to knit our hearts together in unison with each other and that we are harmonizing with each other, knowing that that brings a smile to the face of our God. Whenever his people lay aside the differences that could divide us and we come together and we worship him passionately, but we also worship him in harmony with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Would you stand with me? Father God, I pray today that this would be a special day, Lord, in our lives and in the life of our church, not because it's our 12th anniversary, but because you're here, God. You're in our midst, and you are working and moving in our hearts and in our minds. And that, God, we can do this journey not only with our brothers and sisters, but with you. And that you have this exciting plan and purpose for our life as a church and as individual Christians. And Lord, you just want us to join you and partner with you in this great journey and adventure that we're on together. And so, Lord, I pray today that today would be sort of a day of, of recommitment for all of us. A day where we're saying back again, yep, I'm all in, God. I'm, I, I want to be all in with you. And I want to be all in with my brothers and sisters in Christ. I want to be part of a body where we can, through the years together, lift up one voice to you. Lord, thank you for all that you have done. Things, Lord, that I don't even know about until I get to heaven that you've done to bless our church, to bring us to this point. But I know this, God, without you, none of this would have been possible. To you be all the glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.